how do you find passion? How do you get a, a full heart? Uh, how do you feel alive being excited about something, like your life is about something? Um, you see people with passion all around here. Uh, how do we get it? And in order to under- answer that question, we're going to look at Luke 7 and an encounter Jesus has with two very different kind of people and a parable he tells them. So this is the word of the Lord. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, standing behind him at his feet, and weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, said, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little will love little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And he said to those who are at the table with him, uh, and those who are at the table with him begin to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. (coughs) Lord, I pray as we consider this text that we would see your heart and that we would see ourselves and that by the power of your Holy Spirit we'd be able to honestly reflect on who we are in the face of your holiness, the ways that we maybe think too highly of ourselves, the ways we maybe think too lowly of you, and maybe the ways we're too afraid to hope that this news could really be true. So, dear Jesus, please be with us and please teach us. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, has anybody watched the Steve Jobs movie with Ashton Kutcher? came out like on Netflix recently, which means I can watch it. What did y'all think about the movie? Anybody? Crowd interaction. Not bad. Who else saw it? Who? Somebody else raised their hand. No? Okay, it's not that great of a movie. It feels like Ashton Kutcher is delivering about 12 halftime speeches given by Steve Jobs throughout the movie, and they just set up scenes where Ashton Kutcher can give, like, halftime speeches. But instead of halftime speeches for any kind of sport, it's like halftime speeches for, like, a tech firm. And so it's really odd. It does, it, it's bad storytelling. And it's kind of sad because he's such an intriguing historical character. He deserves a better movie than this, so I can't really recommend it. But um, he's somebody that needed to have a story told, especially for us. And, uh, and, and when they tell this story, what, one of the things you can tell they do in the movie is they intentionally make him out to be a very um, 
obtuse personality. Nobody likes him. And, it, I mean, this movie was even made after the guy died. Um, and I think they actually, it's clear they did it on purpose, and I think they did it for this reason. The movie communicated this. This is what it was all about. Steve Jobs was a man of devotion. And the movie communicated that he was so devoted to his dream, and the way they communicated that is they said, he's so devoted, you need to see he didn't care what anybody else thought, because that's one of the marks of true devotion, is you actually stop caring about other people. So he didn't care what people thought about him. He didn't care about being respected or being disrespected. He didn't care about social pressures. He didn't care about making people happy. He cared about Apple, and that was it. And for that reason, he just didn't abide by any other social conventions that anybody else did. He didn't waste time on those things. He, was, he, had, he had what we want, a singularly devoted passion. And that's why he's the patron saint of Silicon Valley. Right? That's what everybody wants. It's something they care about so much that they can be the, like, the savior of their own little mission. Right? We all want to have something that our heart is so enraptured by and we're so driven by that it gives us meaning and purpose. And actually what devotion does is it gives you freedom. It frees us from all the other things that are pulling on us all the time, all the other avenues in life that we're trying to measure up. When you are truly devoted, you stop caring. And actually some, in a lot of ways that can be really healthy. And what I want to propose to you tonight is actually Steve Jobs has nothing on this woman in terms of devotion and passion. That this is a picture of someone whose heart is full. Whose heart is so taken over by a singular love that she didn't care what anybody else thought. And I kind of want you to ask yourself that question. What would it be like to have a heart so full you didn't care what anybody else thought? And that's right, like at a Christian Bible study on a Tuesday night, I'm asking you to entertain the possibility of living a life where you don't care. Where you're actually free from caring about stuff all the time. Because I think actually when we understand the gospel, that's something that begins to happen in our life. That's actually what a full heart begins to look like. And those, the kind of people with, with devotion like that, they intimidate us. I don't know about you, but that, I'm always intimidated by those people. And we normally think that, that confidence comes from strength. We think those people are really confident, and confidence comes from strength. Okay, all of the strength that you can muster in your life, academic, professional, physical, personality, all that stuff, all of it's temporary. So no true confidence can arise from any kind of strength you can derive from yourself. Real and true confidence actually arises from love. It's actually a byproduct of love. When someone is so enraptured in love, they have the confidence to not care about anything else anymore. People who have a singular and powerful love, have a singular and powerful concern or passion, in which they're not constrained by all the other anxieties and the pressures and, and just the noise that complicate everything. Think about the things every day, right? There's noise. There's just static, right? There's social static every day. You think about how you dress today. You think about how you interacted with people on your holiday. You think about the weekend. Maybe you were left out of plans. You found out your friends did something and, and you weren't a part of those plans. Rush is coming up. You're trying to figure out where you fit in. You either want to get a bid or you want to show the Greek system that you don't care about getting a bid. Everybody has an opinion about it. We're all engaging this social static as we're trying to figure out who we are all the time, every day. 
are you a part of it? You walked into RUF. Are you a part of RUF or not? How do you how do you navigate the social scene right as soon as the last song ends or, or the Poland's do their announcements? Right, <laughs> that's always complicated. <laughs> but dude, all right, I'm the RUF campus minister. When they finish their announcements. I feel social anxiety. I'm like, who do I talk to? What do I talk about? I don't know. None of these people want to talk about Alabama football. <laughs> There's all this social static and social noise that, we're, that, that goes from like little tiny things like that and all the way up to really big important things that we're navigating all the time, and we're not free. And I will not be free when they finish their announcements. I'm going to be terrified about what y'all think about me. And, yeah, just keep going. That's why it's so good that y'all do get awkwardly funny the whole time. It releases a little social pressure. It helps me. Um, right, but we're navigating all those little pressures and all those little anxieties. Academic professional stuff, right? How do you spend your time? Which classes? Which opportunities do you take? You have all these internships you're kind of mulling over for the summer. How long can you keep all those doors open? So that you don't miss out anything, physical pressures about our body and our appearance, um, running, exercising, whatever it is, dining. We have all these cares that are consuming like all of our bandwidth, all the time. And this is a woman that's free. And she's free to truly love. She's free from all the things that actually freezes our hearts that instills a lot of fear in us, that causes us every day to both overcommit to 100,000 different things on campus because we think so, we got we got to commit to everything because maybe in all of those things we commit to within that landscape of commitments that we don't keep very well, maybe there's a hope of finding something I'm passionate about that will define me. So we make a ton of commitments and then don't keep them very well because our time and our loyalties are divided between serving all those hopes, trying to make ourselves available to them all, Hoping one's going to jumpstart my heart and give me a vision and a passion and a life and an identity. And this woman doesn't care about any of that. She is blowing all of her opportunities, socially, professionally, religiously. She doesn't care. And in that way, she's actually supremely human. I think she's more human than we are. In the same way that we're actually less human because our calendars and our fears have taken our humanity. And this is a woman full of love. I think the reason that we say yes to everything is not because we're optimistic, hopeful people that are really talented. The reason that we actually examine your heart and examine your life and tell me this is not true. The reason we say yes to everything, to opportunities and to pleasures and to pursuits. I'm not talking about just academic stuff. I'm talking about all the things we say yes to. We say yes to everything because we don't have hearts in love with anything. We don't have any singular thing that defines us. So we're saying yes to everything, hoping that something will define us. We're wandering around hoping somebody will love me. Somebody will find me acceptable. And this woman is not in that race because she is blowing all of her opportunities. And my question for us is, how does she get there? How do we get into that place where your heart is so full of love that you stop caring? That's the application for tonight. I hope you walk out not caring. And I think you get what I'm saying. That you're to walk out not weighted down by all the static of the bajillion daily cares that consume our hearts. 
So how does she get there? First of all, we need to go through what she did. We need to understand it on a sociological and religious level. This is not news. If you know anything about the Bible, you probably know the Pharisees are the religious leaders. They are the pastors in town. And Jesus was an itinerant preacher. He's traveling around the countryside preaching. A lot of people are going to the sermons. Came to their town, and Simon the Pharisee did the logical thing. He invited Jesus over for dinner. Hey, you're preaching in our town. We'd love to get dinner with you. This is, again, this is all logical. This is normal. This is hospitality. That's the setup. And the second thing you need to know is that reality TV is not a new idea. Uh, the real world survivor, they're not new ideas. In the first century, people didn't have television. And when you read commentaries and you read things about the social landscape at this point in time, the townspeople and the poor people would go and watch the famous and important people. Because that was what was happening in these small villages in the evening. And so when actually all the important people gather at a feast or something like that, the people who are not admitted to the feast stand outside and watch. So Mark Burnett didn't come up with anything new. Reality TV has been around for a minimum 2,000 years. <clears throat> so townspeople were watching. That's what they did. And just like today, there are social barriers between classes. Uh, when you see a homeless person at different places on campus, you get this weird sense he doesn't belong. Right? There are places certain types of people belong, and there are places certain types of people you're not comfortable with them feeling like they belong. Right? Something in us registers that in different contexts we see certain people and we think they don't belong. The Pharisees are the clergy class, and you might have already gathered what her place is on both the social and the religious spectrum. What she is is she is a prostitute. That's what she's designated when it says she's a woman of the city who was a sinner. So let that sink in for a moment. These are all the pastors in town visiting with an itinerant preacher. And a prostitute who was outside watching with the rest of the people comes into the party. And she, makes, she does the most inappropriate thing imaginable. She invites her totally illegitimate self into the dining room of the most important and spiritual people in the city and invited all of their attention on herself... And she didn't care. That's what I want y'all to see. She didn't care. And she put on a wildly inappropriate display. Letting her hair down would have been suggestive, but she wasn't actually being suggestive toward Jesus. She was just washing his feet, and she needed something to wipe his feet with. And the unwritten social conventions that keep all of us in line all the time. Right now, there's a bajillion social conventions at work. That's why nobody's speaking up. Because you know, there's a social convention. Don't talk while Britain's talking. We have all these rules operating all the time. She's in breach of all of them. And she was no longer controlled by what everyone expected a person like her should do. How afraid are we of the rejection that comes when you abandon social convention? Right? Maybe you're like most of us, myself included. You come to college and you had these things in high school that you considered your values. Maybe a certain way of living that you said you were committed to. Whatever that was. Religious or irreligious. And you came to college and you found out that in order to be accepted, to avoid being rejected, to avoid being an outsider, you know what you're willing to do? You're willing to be a different kind of person. That actually obeying the social conventions of your new community was more important than, quote-unquote, your values. And that's why maybe you've behaved differently in college, in whatever way it is. 
We're, we care so much about social conventions and acceptability that we abandon the things that we previously cared about. Because more than anything, we want people or a community or a person to say, you're acceptable, you fit in here. And she didn't care. And she didn't play by those rules. What if you were free like her? What would that look like? So you need to know what she did. She both abandoned all those social conventions. She defied them. And then the second thing she did, and this is even a bigger deal, she gave up her life. That what's happening in this, when it says a woman in the city was a sinner and standing... uh, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and anointed Jesus' feet with the ointment. That alabaster jar of ointment, that detail is huge because what it was is it was her life. It literally, not literally, literally the way people use it, it was her Stanford degree. It was her marriage, it was her house, it was her family, it was her central asset. It was the thing that defined her. It was her pedigree because a prostitute would spend an abundance of their wealth and their money and their accumulation on their scent. And they would carry that jar with them, and that would be their identity marker. And according to how expensive and developed that scent was, as they developed oils and different scents over time, that's how you told, actually, the price of a prostitute. So the more they invested in it, the higher price they were. So that's their central asset. That was, those were all the assets of her business that, that drove her business, was that alabaster jar of ointment. And so it really was her Stanford degree. And her flask to her, it was her life. And you have to imagine, this is what you really actually need to imagine. When she pours that out, that's her everything. And it's the equivalent of you taking your Stanford diploma and drying Jesus' feet with your Stanford diploma. The thing you look at that defines you, that makes you acceptable, that makes you the one, that makes you feel okay. Her life is poured out on the floor in front of her. Now, why would someone do something so wasteful? Because she's found something even more lovely than her livelihood. She didn't even, she not only did she not care about social conventions, she didn't care about tomorrow. What if you found something, wouldn't that be awesome, found something to which your heart was attached that made it so that you never even cared that you went to Stanford? That things, the things that formerly comprised your worth and your sense of self, that they just actually stopped to mean very much to you anymore. You don't even think about them because your heart is fixated on something better than that picture of the you that you're trying to create that makes you feel okay. And what you got to see is when something's truly that lovely and when you experience that kind of love, it will demand your life. But when you have something that lovely that grabs your heart, you'll actually willingly give it your life. Don't you wish you have something that you love that way? Don't you want to be full? How did she get there? And she got there because she understood an issue that actually nobody wants to talk about over coffee. And so what we have to do for a moment is actually talk about a conversation that rarely occurs. And not rarely occurs, uh, happens a little bit, happens periodically. But there's actually a topic of conversation that's actually absent, largely absent, in the hundreds of cups of coffee that I've gotten with y'all. 
And, and I know that when you get coffee with me, it's not like getting coffee with a friend. I'm a spiritual advisor, right, in some regard. And, uh, and so you come in, when you get coffee, you have a slightly different set of expectations about what our conversation will be like. And I love getting to know you and, and hearing your stories. And I want to ask about your life and what's going on. I want to know what's going well, what's going poorly, what, what's, what's a big deal for you. And I always want to know what God is doing in your life or what you think about God or what you think about the gospel. I want to know the spiritual side of your life. But in all of those questions, you know it rarely is a topic of conversation. It's rarely that we talk about sin. Because instead of that topic, right, spiritual advisor guy, when, you, when y'all come and meet with me, and, and I'm, I'm not making light of these things, and, I, and you are welcome to come and talk to me about these things, I'll, and I'll, I'm not very, I don't have much to offer you, but I'll offer you what I have. But I want you to hear this. I'm not making light of these. But when you come and think, here's spiritual advisor guy. So I talked about I talk about some of my problems with him. This is largely what we talk about. Not again. I'm not making light of these. We talk about the real stress and pain that comes from your workload, your loneliness, and your relationships. Right? It's crazy busy here. That's a legitimate stress. We can talk about it. I love to talk about it. Loneliness, just wanting to have somebody, and then relationship stuff. Parents, roommates, friends. But that's the conversation. And those are the stresses and the anxieties and the pains and the sufferings that people want to talk about. And those are the things that we kind of want to ask God to deal with. Here are the big things in my life I kind of can't get over. And then when I ask about your relationship with God, we usually end up talking about how to manage your workload, your loneliness, in some kind of difficult relationship situation. Friends, roommates, parents, whatever. Not dismissing those things. And I'm not saying we can't talk about those things. Let's pay attention. Let's keep talking. But I want to say this. Right now, and I really mean this, it's going to sound flippant, but I actually don't mean it flippant. I can give you some key things that can help you with your workload. And I'm being very serious. And, And I can help you figure these out. But if you exercise and you eat better and you rest, that's going to help a ton. That might solve most of your issues. And if that doesn't solve most of your issues, you can look at the possibility of antidepressants. I'm not being flippant about this. These things may really actually solve a lot of your problems in terms of handling your workload. Maybe learning to say no to a couple of things as well. Exercise well, diet well, sleep. If that doesn't work, Maybe talk to a doctor about some antidepressants. That will mostly solve your workload problem, handling the stresses of school. You know what can really help with your loneliness? And I have friends for whom this has really helped. And you're going to laugh. And again, I'm actually not being flippant. Match.com. Like seriously, if you're like, I really want a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and you haven't found one in your community, don't be afraid of the online world. Watch Aziz Ansari's latest stand-up as a validation of that. Right? (laughs) You know it can really help in your relationships? There are people far more equipped than me to help you talk through things that are going on with your parents. I'll talk about those things. I'm not saying I won't. But I will tell you this. I'm not very gifted and I'm not very... It's not my training. And there are great therapists that can talk through those issues with you. Those things are good and I'm not dismissing them. And, And I'm not... 
I sound flippant because that's just my tone because I just sound like a jerk because I kind of am a jerk. But I really don't mean those things flippantly. My point is actually this. Most of what we want God to deal with in our life can be solved by diet, exercise, rest, antidepressants, match.com, and a therapist. Most of the things that you want to talk to a spiritual advisor about, saying, I hope God can help me order these events in my life, can be solved, exercise, rest, eat well, possibly an antidepressant, an online dating service, and a therapist. And here's the thing about all those things. We have all of those today. And you don't have to wake up early on Sunday morning to get those things. Now, that did sound flippant, but... (laughs) My point is really this. If you access those things and they help you, and they can be really helpful... You'll be someone who appreciates those things to a moderate level, right? And you should. If all you're asking for God's help on is those things, God help me in my loneliness, in my workload, in my relationship with my parents, then your heart toward God will be no larger and no fuller than your heart towards your therapist, towards Match.com, and towards antidepressants. All of those evils and frustrations, this is what they are. They are real and they are painful. That's why I'm not making light of them. But they are symptoms. And they are not the cancer themselves. And the reason I would still love to talk to you about those things is because what I want to do is I want to talk about your relationship with your parents and your addiction to work. But I don't want to talk about your parents or your work very long. I want to follow that down because what that is is it's a skin irritation. And skin irritation is really painful. And they actually need ointment. And they can be solved temporarily. But they point us to a cancer deep down below. And that's where I want to go. And that's where Jesus wants to take us. And if all we ever do is add those cures of diet and exercise, antidepressants, therapists, and match.com, we're rubbing ointment on true and real irritations in life, but we're not dealing with the cancer inside. And until we start to have an honest conversation about sin about the natural inborn self-love, that's what it is, that permeates my whole life and your whole life, that is the chief cause of pain and suffering, that it cuts us off from God, it leaves us feeling unacceptable, it makes us worthy of judgment, and generally we're just messed over because of it. Until we start to have a conversation about sin, you'll never understand the goodness of the gospel, and your heart will never fill the sweetness of Jesus and the profundity of His grace, of His act of pardon, it won't make sense to you and your heart will still feel small and you'll still find yourself running around trying to find something that will fill your heart, that will make you feel like you have vision and passion. And life will be mostly about treating symptoms of frustration and never really dealing with who we are. And you'll grow increasingly actually passionless and joyless. And... I'm not actually going to spend a whole lot of time explaining the parable because it explains itself. It's so clear. This woman believed that her sin was great. And so she sought in Jesus a great Savior. She believed that sin had consigned her to judgment, that it had wrecked her, that it was sin against God's holiness, a perpetual inborn self-love that had jacked her life. And God is so full of love and concern for joy that His wrath 
is not His lack of love. When you think God's wrath, this is what His wrath is. The wrath is the word that describes His feelings towards everything that messes up life. And the Bible's argument is that pain and suffering originates in our radical self-absorption. And this is why the summary of the law, the summary of flourishing, is love God and love your neighbor. The summary of the law is not be nice. And that's what we want the summary of the law to be because we all think of ourselves, well, maybe not loving if loving is really what the Bible says it is, which is giving yourself up in order to serve and seek the well-being of others. But what we can do is we can all be pretty nice. And being pretty nice feels pretty good. Right? If we tip well and ask the barista how their day is and act like we really care, right? Then we're pretty nice people, you know? And if you don't tell people what you really think about them, then you're pretty nice. And God's design for flourishing is in the call to love God and love your neighbor. And that's far more than being nice. Go and try love. Don't try being nice. Try love. If you want to know what love is, Jesus is the model of love for us. It is giving up all the things that you care about, your dreams and your desires, so that someone else can be happy. Let go of your dreams and your concerns and your goals and your happiness. Instead, actually use your energies and your resources and your mental energy to serve someone else. That's what love is. Now go and try to fulfill that law. Try and be good with that understanding. And you'll understand what C.S. Lewis meant when he said, no one believes that they're bad, no one believes that they're a sinner, until they truly try and be good. If you go to battle with your self-love, you'll find out who you really are. She knew who she was. She knew that she was a sinner. Now, why don't we like to talk about sin? I think there's two small reasons and two big reasons. This gets us toward the end. On the surface, right, when you talk about sin in the Bay Area, Northern California, it sounds like you're saying something mean and difficult and intolerant, right? The sin word is so intolerant, you know? And we feel like, well, you shouldn't say something that hurts other people's feelings. If it hurts other people's feelings, then it's just wrong on that basis. But none of us wants our oncologists to not want to hurt our feelings when they find out they have cancer. Sometimes truth requires hurt feelings. Now, people can abuse that or recognize that, but I'm saying we have to talk, we can't dismiss the concept of sin simply because it's hard to digest. The other reason we're really dismissive of talking about it is it feels judgmental. Right? When someone talks about sin, it feels like they're doing it from, from this high place and they're, they're being dismissive and hurtful and judgmental to these lower people that you're kind of, you're, you're, you're separating yourself and it's this act of self-righteousness. Listen, there is one heart in this room that I objectively and subjectively have experienced. It's darkness to such a level it's hard for me to believe that any of y'all understand a heart that dark. And it's my own. So when I talk about sin, let me tell you, what is in me is dark. And I've experienced much more darkness in here than I have from any of you. So I can tell you this much. When I talk about sin, and I think when anybody who understands the gospel talks about sin, it is not from a place of self-righteousness. I think those are two small reasons that actually maybe are paper thin that we don't talk about sin. I think there's two larger reasons. I think for the, one of the larger reasons we don't talk about sin is, first of all, we don't feel sinful. Um, we hear the word sin, and if you're familiar with the writer-slash-poet Mary Carr, who's written several memoirs, she wrote a book called Lit, uh, and she talks about her own alcoholism. And um, 
she goes to her first, she tells the story of going to one of her first AA meetings, and she went in the AA meeting, and she heard all these horror stories about, like, really crazy, raging alcoholics. And she says this, I doubt I'm an alcoholic because I never drink in the morning. Nothing particularly bad's ever happened to me. I haven't gone bankrupt. I haven't had a car wreck. I haven't even, <laughs> not even the standard mugging. Then this is what she says. The next morning, however, she finds herself finishing a tumbler of whiskey from the night before, and she has a moment of clarity. And as she feels the drink burn down her throat, she catches herself in her first lie. And she feels a crack, actually, in her self-deception. The momentary recognition of her own self-deceit leads her mind to proclaim almost aloud, I have a disease whose defining symptom is believing you don't have a disease. I think we're like her. Thinking we don't have a sin problem, when we hear about it, talk to it, People talk about it at RUF or at church or when you read about it in the Bible. And we think, I don't have a sin problem because I'm not crazy evil. I haven't done any of the horrible, horrible things, right? And what I hope and I actually pray happens for you because it will be good. And I pray that Jesus will, it will happen for me and it will happen for my children. Is that when we think, oh, sin, that, that's, that's something for like crazy, horrible people. When you go back tonight, when you wake up tomorrow morning... And you find yourself nursing bitterness towards that friend, towards that parent, towards that person. I hope that in that moment, you have the realization Mary Carr had, that you will see in that bitterness is the seed of every kind of evil and suffering. And that seed of bitterness is the root for all kinds of malice. We think we don't have a sin problem, and that's precisely why the writer of Hebrews says... Encourage one another because sin is deceitful. It will do its best to convince you it doesn't exist. So I think we don't talk about sin because we don't feel sinful. Because we let all the little things that are the seeds of deep, dark, evil things like bitterness and jealousy and unforgiveness and laziness, we let all of those things slide by. And we refuse to let the Bible actually truly confront us. I think we also don't talk about sin for the same reason I don't like to open my credit card statement, is because if we actually did an inventory, we'd be afraid we can't pay it. If we actually took the Bible's description of holiness and obedience and human flourishing at its word and stopped kind of mitigating it and changing it to, to kind of custom fit our life so we don't have to deal with certain things, we'd be terrified. It calls our anger and our vindictiveness... And our friendships into question, what we do chemically and sexually calls, gets called into question, our materialism gets called into question, our ambition gets called into question, our self-righteousness and our judgmentalism gets called into question, our fears get called into question. If you start wrestling with what the Bible says sin really is, you're going to find out, it's, I think it's calling all of my life into question. And that's really disorienting unless there's a solution. There's too much to deal with. So we mitigate the law's commands and we commend ourselves for at least being nice people because we ask the barista how their day was. And we think, well, I'm selfish, but I'm nice. Y yes, this is all about me, but at least I'm a decent person. Because we don't want the Bible to really take an inventory of who we are. Because we're afraid if it did, we couldn't pay. That's why I wait a couple of days to open my credit card statements. Like, I know what's in there. I just don't want to see it. Because it's going to be more than I want it to be. 
we don't want to talk about sin because if we really put it out on display, we believe that there's too much muck and we don't want to know how to handle it. And that's true. And this is a woman who knew for sure there was too much and she couldn't handle it. Nobody denies that of a prostitute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We all feel better about who we are next to her. The Pharisee was the one who never had conversations about sin, and he had a little heart because he asked God for little things because he's only dealing, willing to deal with little problems. The woman was someone who realized her only hope left was forgiveness. And that's why her heart's full. Because in Jesus, forgiveness is real. And the degree to which you actually believe in the darkness of the sin, to that degree, your heart will be filled. As long as you ask God to be your guru and your therapist and your match.com and your Prozac, expect to have no larger heart for God than you would for any of those things. See, she didn't just see sin in herself. That's not the whole story. She also saw there's forgiveness in Jesus. And that is the message of Scripture from beginning to end. And what is so tragic about the Pharisees, they're experts in Judaism. Memorize the first five books of the Bible. That's what it took to be a Pharisee. Is that the very heart of the Old Testament is this story of forgiveness. It's, they knew word for word the Pentateuch. And in the first five books of the Bible... All God is saying over and over again is forgiveness is the only hope. Forgiveness is the only hope. He set up this system in their life. He said, I want you to get up every morning and go to the temple and hear forgiveness is your only hope. And then I want you to go to the temple in the evening and hear forgiveness is your only hope. And then what I want you to do is I want you to have feasts, several of them a year, that are several days long. And the feast is about God provides forgiveness. And then one of the coolest things that happened in Israel's history is every 50 years they would have a year-long party which is cooler than any fraternity here, Israel would have a year-long party, and the party was about forgiving all the debts in the land. Everybody would be released from all of their debts because God was saying, you got to get the main thing, the only hope is forgiveness. And I give it freely because forgiveness can only be free. How did the Pharisees miss it? You know how they missed it? They stopped believing in their own sin. So they asked God for little things because they thought they only had little problems. They still thought that what, when God talks about sin, He does it to make us feel bad so that it would motivate us to be better so that He'll like us more. The conviction of the evil of sin is a blessing because it, God's not using it to shame you into behaving better. He's using it so He can more profoundly reveal to you His work of forgiveness. That He forgives even somebody like you and He forgives even somebody like me. The woman got I need forgiveness because i got nothing left. I can't out-religious my way out of this situation. And to her, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And this is Christianity 101. But this is what it means. God requires no more payment from her for the things that she has done at all. When Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven, He gives her the best possible news in the world. The best Bible news someone like her, someone like us could ever hope to receive. And at the same time, it will bring the greatest possible pain into his life. Because what it meant is not a single iota of the immorality in her life, of the debauchery of her life, not a single ounce of it 
will be held against her before the judgment seat of God. Nothing will be held against her before the judgment seat of God. Before the eyes of the living God, all of her sin is gone. Gone. She's free in a way that maybe we never dared imagine possible. And he knew full well that in his pronouncement of his forgiveness on her, that it was going to be the scourge of his life. That in forgiving her, it would cost him so much that even Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, would weep over how much it was going to cost him. And within the parable, the moneylender, what did it cost him to forgive? Cost him 500 denarii. Forgiveness is free for the forgiven, and it is costly for the forgiver. And when it begins to dawn on you how much Christ paid to forgive you, this is what happens. Your heart starts to fill. When Jesus pronounces your sins are forgiven, He simultaneously gives her the best news she could ever hoped and brings a world of hurt into His own life. And that fills her heart with awe. Jesus offers you forgiveness for all of your sin, for all of my sin. In Him, if you receive His forgiveness, God, you will meet God before the judgment seat. And He will look at you and say, He will say, You are spotless. You are righteous. You are holy. I am pleased with you. There is not one single part of your life I judge you for. You're mine. The forgiveness of Jesus means God's will not hold you responsible for any of the mess of our lives because He held Jesus responsible at the cross. That fills your heart. Who gives a crap about your Stanford degree or your startup or my CrossFit life or all the things that plague us or, or who you're going to talk to after a large group whether or not you fit in here? Like, man, the forgiveness of Jesus will fill your heart. And it will make you free. Let's pray.